0: And um, I'm going to read to start with from the um, first epistle of Peter, and, uh, from chapter 4, and verses 7 to 19. The end of all things is near. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled, so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do so as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power for ever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief, or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, What will become of the ungodly and the sinner. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Well, this is Peter's epistle. Um, Peter, who'd been with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry, who was there in the upper room when Jesus was giving the disciples, his last teaching, those last vital things that he wanted to tell them before his death. And now here's Peter with deeply important things to say in what he felt were the last days, things of crucial importance. And there's a sense of urgency for who knew when the Lord might return and all things come to an end or when they might be called home themselves, and we know that some of them were going to be facing martyrdom, including Peter himself. He didn't know when the end, or his end, would come, and neither do we. But if we're fighting the good fight of faith, we need to be in a state of readiness at all times, as Peter says. So we're going to look at this passage and in particular what Peter said and what Jesus in his last um, teaching said about loving deeply. In verse 7, Peter says, let's get our minds right. We need to be clear-headed, self-controlled so we can pray. Love deeply or hold unfailing your love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. If the church, as we sometimes see it, is like a hospital uh, where we find healing for our souls, then love is like the treatment that we need. It's not just a plaster to stick over things and cover them up, but it's like um, a healing and cleansing balm on the things that have wounded us and wounded others. And that means forgiveness. And forgiveness means release, not just for the sinner, but for the sinned against as well. Because as we forgive, we receive release from whatever we've been holding. It's expressed, Peter says, in hospitality, without grumbling or begrudging. It's serving others by using the gifts that we have. And it's faithfully administering God's grace in all its various forms, from welcoming people to uh, washing up the coffee cups, whatever it is. And if we're speaking, it's speaking the word of God. If we're serving, it's serving with the strength that God gives and not in our own strength. So, Peter says, that God may be praised through Jesus because we're doing this in his name and we're meeting that greatest of human needs to love and be loved. So Peter says uh, to these beloved uh, people, look, this is actually a battle. And in battle, you're likely to get wounded. So don't be surprised by painful trials. Rejoice. You're sharing in the suffering and the rejection and the insults that Jesus experienced. If you suffer because you belong to him, If you're insulted because you're a Christian, you're really blessed because the spirit of glory and of God is resting on you. So commit yourself, he says, into the hands of your faithful creator. Peter says this feeling the urgency of the times and knowing, as Jesus did, that believers were going to be put to the test. But urging them, not above all. To fail in love. And Jesus, in his last instruction, said repeatedly, Love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. Love one another. Love even your enemies. So, how does that work out for us as individuals? What does it look like? Well, obviously, first and foremost, it looks like Jesus himself. Love is how he could look into the face of the Roman soldier hammering nails into his hands and feet and say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's how he didn't retaliate when they repeatedly insulted him and vilified him and falsely accused him when he was beaten up by the authorities. Obeying the law of the land um, might make us act with restraint, hopefully, Obeying the law of love means behaving and acting with love even when it hurts. It means not insisting on our rights or seeking revenge, even in our minds. I don't know whether you do this, I know I do. Um, I have kind of little revenge scenarios in my head where I'm vindicated when somebody's said or done something that's hurt me or upset me and in my mind I'm kind of you know, imagining how, how I might respond to that and, and uh, be vindicated. It doesn't mean that. It means asking for the grace to see others as God does and praying for them. And that love isn't grudging or stingy. It's generous and it's open-hearted and it's merciful and it's compassionate and it's kind I wanted to read um, a little extract from uh, a book uh, about the experiences of um, prisoners of war in the Far East in the Second World War. Um, It's a remarkable book, really, because it explains how, or describes how, um, in these really, really grim prisoner of war camps in the Far East where life was nasty, brutish and short... Um, for many people, and where um, the people became almost feral in their efforts to stay alive, gradually a different spirit began to emerge. And it was kind of spearheaded by uh, Christians who self-sacrificingly served others and reached out to others and helped others. And it made a huge difference. It kind of percolated throughout the camp. Um, and, and changed men from just trying to survive and seeking their own well-being to actively seeking other people's. And it made such a huge difference. They were shunted from pillar to post, particularly as the war began to end. Um, and on this occasion, they were, uh, they'd were they been shunted uh, somewhere in a train and then they were taken out and made to wait on a siding for a lengthy Um, Period. We found ourselves on the same track with several carloads of enemy wounded. They were on their own and without medical care. No longer fit for action, they'd been packed into railway trucks which were being returned to Bangkok. Whenever one of them died en route, he was thrown off into the jungle. The ones who survived to reach Bangkok would presumably receive some form of medical treatment but they were given none on the way, and they were in a shocking state. I've never seen men filthier. Their uniforms were encrusted with mud, blood, their wounds sorely inflamed and full of pus, um, really pretty gruesome. And we could understand now why the enemy were so cruel to their prisoners. If they didn't care for their own, why should they care for us? The wounded men looked at us forlornly, as they sat with their heads resting against the carriages, waiting fatalistically for death. They were the refuse of war. They had nowhere to go and no one to care for them. These were the enemy, more cowed and defeated than we had ever been. Without a word, most of the officers in my section unbuckled their packs, took out part of their ration and a rag or two and with water, canteens in their hands, went over to the enemy train to help them. Our guards tried to prevent us bawling, no good, no good, but we ignored them. And knelt by the side of the enemy to give them food and water. To clean and bind up their wounds, to smile and say a kind word. And grateful cries of thank you followed us when we left. And I regarded my comrades with wonder. Eighteen months ago they would have joined readily in the destruction of our captors had they fallen into their hands. Now these same men were dressing the enemy's wounds. We'd experienced a moment of grace even in those blood-stained railway cars. God had broken through the barriers of our prejudice and had given us the will To obey his command, thou shalt love. So how could those men do that? Well, Jesus linked loving him and loving others with action, with actively obeying his commands and abiding in him. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And it seems that love, the love of the Lord, is less like a feeling and more like a muscle. And the more we exercise it, the stronger it becomes. Jesus says the one who actually does what he commands is the one who remains in his love, putting love into action even when the feeling isn't there. 1 John says, Beloved, let us love not in words or tongue, but in actions and truth. So how do we exercise that muscle? Well, here are some ways to do it from Scripture. Seeking one another's good. Esteeming them better than yourself. Going the extra mile with them. Loving the antagonistic, the unappealing ones, the unlovely the unappreciative ones, going after the lost ones, the troubled ones, those whose lives are in chaos when, naturally speaking, we we might try to avoid them. Being tender-hearted, not rendering evil for evil, loving and ministering to our brothers and sisters in Christ as we would to Jesus himself. Because Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples by the love you show each other. That is what the world will see and what the world so much needs to see. Last Sunday, Rosie spoke to us about um, the essential armour of God and how we need to fight the good fight of faith. But we also wear a uniform. Um, How do we distinguish between um, members of the different forces when we see them, Um, like the RAF or the Navy or the Army or the police? It's by their uniform. Something every member wears, and even though they're individuals, it makes them alike. And love is our uniform. Marking us as Christians wherever in the world we are, whatever nationality, or language, or location. And it's ours, our distinguishing characteristic, what we wear, along with our spiritual armour, and it goes on first. 1 Colossians 3.12 says, Put on, then, as God's chosen, called-out beloved ones, compassion kindness, lowliness, meekness, patience, those are all part of love. We're not going to be marked out by our piety, by our church attendance, even by our good works, but by our love. And that's often translated, especially in the Old Testament, as loving kindness. There's a Hebrew word, hesed. That means loving kindness. And that's such a good word, Because kindness isn't just a a watered-down version of love. It's an essential component. Kindness, compassion, mercy, love, they're all combined in the love of God and the love we're to have for each other. You probably have heard um, someone say or or, or come across this um, before somebody delivers a, a criticism or rebuke. I'm saying this in love when actually it's not, it's unkind and it's undermining. And love isn't being sentimental and sometimes we do need to point out something that isn't right but it's never unkind or demoralising. Paul describes in in a very famous um, passage in 1 Corinthians 13 what love is and what it's not and it's like giving us a mirror to hold up, to check ourselves in. He says love is patient and kind. It's not jealous or boastful. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't revel in wrong. There's no room for scandal or a schadenfreude here. But it delights in the right. It keeps no record of wrongs. There's no, oh, you always do so and so, or you never do so and so. It keeps no record of wrongs. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes and endures all things, trusting God to carry us through, even when it's hard. And this love, Paul says, never ends. He says prophecies, knowledge, tongues, one day they'll disappear because they won't be needed. Their fulfillment will have come, just like um, childhood becomes maturity, because we can only see parts of the picture now, and one day we'll see the completed masterpiece, and running through it all, we'll see love. And why is this? It's because God himself is love and he wants us to know his love and trust his love and walk in his love until one day we look into the very face of love himself in glory. John says if we don't love our brothers and sisters that we see now how can we claim to love the God we don't yet see? If we don't love, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we achieve nothing. Even if we're amazing speakers, um, without love that's just noise, or we're gifted prophets or amazing theologians or perform miracles, without love, he says it's of no avail. We might give sacrificially even to the point of laying down our lives, but if we're loveless, we gain nothing. Because love is God's imperative and it's Jesus' command. It's vital for our well-being and for that of others, those around us. We have the Holy Spirit to help us. In fact, it's through him that the seeds of love are sown in our hearts in the first place. Romans 5, 5 says, <clears throat> the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, and that means it's broadcast, like the old-fashioned sower used to sow the seed. It's broadcast in our hearts, that sown seed, by the Holy Spirit. And how do we get more love? How will it grow? Well, it's uh, one of those amazing paradoxes that by giving more, it grows. It's, it's that kind of reverse arithmetic. Uh, you probably remember the story of Elijah and the poor widow um, during the time of, of famine. She had only a very little oil to start with, but as she poured it out, so it increased, and it flowed to meet her need and the need of many others. The love needs to be poured out like that healing balm. It needs to be exercised like that muscle it needs to be worn like the uniform and I know that sometimes in our church fellowships people haven't always felt loved or seen love being demonstrated you might have experienced that yourself you might have maybe um, had that experience where you've gone up maybe plucked, uh, plucked up courage to speak to somebody and you see their eyes swivel past you to somebody else or something else and, and found that really hurtful. And it might have been other things. So can I ask in these last few minutes that you think of times when you have seen love in action and how that was demonstrated? Can you think for a while how, what you've seen and how you saw that? Maybe in something somebody said, something they did, the way that they may be reached out to you or prayed with you or just let you know that you were loved and that they loved you in the name of the Lord. May we see so much more of that and may this church be marked by love above all else because that's what God is like. And it's what the world so badly needs to see. Amen.